You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. NASA has responded to a request from the Navajo Nation to delay the January 8th ULA launch that will send the first commercial lander to the moon. And that response was essentially, not our payload, not our problem. T-minus. 20 seconds to LOS. Go for Today is January 5th, 2024. I'm Maria Varmazis. I'm Alice Carruth, and this is T-Minus. NASA says no to the Navajo request to delay ULA's launch on Monday. SpaceX sues the National Labor Board. The GAO denies L3 Harris's protest against a Ball NASA contract. And our guest today is Philip Harlow, president of the commercial satellite operator Telesat. Happy Friday, everybody. Let's take a look at our Intel briefing for today. And we mentioned earlier this week that the Navajo Nation filed a formal objection with NASA about the planned January 8th ULA launch of commercial missions to the moon, because two of the payloads going up contain human remains. President Boo Nigren of Navajo Nation said, It is crucial to emphasize that the moon holds a sacred position in many indigenous cultures, including ours. The act of depositing human remains and other materials, which could be perceived as discards in any other location— on the moon is tantamount to desecration of this sacred space. Well, January 8th is coming up pretty fast, and yesterday the response came from NASA about this issue via Chris Colbert, who is NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program Manager. He said this in a briefing yesterday. We don't have the framework for telling them what they can and can't fly. The approval process doesn't run through NASA for commercial missions. But not to dismiss the concerns outright here, Deputy Associate Administrator for Exploration Joel Kearns added that, quote, we're going to learn through these first landings and the follow-up landings, all the different issues or concerns that are generated by that. 
And I'm sure that as time goes by, there are going to be changes to how we view this or how industry itself maybe sets up standards or guidelines about how they're going to proceed. And for its part, Celestis, which is one of the two commercial space companies sending human remains to the moon, it sent a written statement published in an article on space.com. It's from Celestis CEO and co-founder Charles Chafer. And here is some of what he said about the objection from Navajo Nation. And I quote, The regulatory process that approves space missions does not consider compliance with the tenets of any religion in the process for obvious reasons. No individual religion can or should dictate whether a space mission should be approved. No one and no religion owns the moon. And were the beliefs of the world's multitude of religions considered, it's quite likely that no missions would ever be approved. Simply, we do not and never have let religious beliefs dictate humanity's space efforts. There is not and should not be a religious test, end quote. This is unquestionably not the last time an issue like this will come up. And with more missions to the moon planned, not to mention permanent establishments on the moon planned, more cultural and ethical quandaries like this one are going to come up more and more. The pace of progress marches on in space, but it is certainly getting trickier. Amen to that. And of course, this whole dispute is over the planned United Launch Alliance Vulcan Centaur launch, which is planning to lift off on Monday from Florida. The 202-foot-tall rocket is set to debut the first of ULA's new rocket designs in 18 years. It's designed to meet the requirements of the U.S. Space Force and intelligence agencies for national security satellite launches. But it'll also serve as a launch vehicle for private space ventures, including this one, and 38 launches planned to deploy satellites for Amazon's Project Kuiper. We mentioned yesterday that SpaceX has come under scrutiny after the U.S. Labor Board accused the rocket and satellite maker of illegally firing employees. And now they're suing. SpaceX claims the structure of the National Labor Relations Board, which issued a complaint against Elon Musk's company earlier this week, violates the U.S. Constitution. And in its lawsuit... SpaceX claims that because federal law only allows board members and administrative judges to be removed for cause and not at will, the NLRB's structure is unconstitutional. We'll continue to watch this drama unfold in the coming weeks. I'll save you from telling you what we call this sort of thing in England. And speaking of objections, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, or GAO, has denied the protest by L3 Harris over the award of a NASA contract to Ball Aerospace and Technologies Corporation. Ball had their proposal accepted by NASA for the Geostationary Extended Observations, or GEOXO, sounder GXS, instrument implementation. L3 Harris had challenged the agency's evaluation of proposals and the selection decision. NASA has selected 13 concepts for the 2024 Phase 1 awardees for its program called NIAC. And NIAC, which stands for NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts, funds early-stage tech concept studies for future consideration and potential commercialization. The total award is a maximum of $175,000 in grants to evaluate technologies that could enable tomorrow's space missions. And we've included a link to see all of the neat concepts that have been awarded. And there are a few that we think are worth mentioning today. One of them is studying torpor in animals for space health in humans, which is known as STASH. And torpor is a state of physical or mental inactivity, by the way. I'm an expert on torpor. And biocatalytic elimination of omnipresent perchlorates. 
which is a study to detoxify Mars. <laughs> Why they can't keep these names more simple, I do not know. <laughs> But speaking of innovative designs, an architect from Cumbria in the UK has won €10,000 prize for a design of an elevator that transports passengers into space. Space elevators, Marie! Space elevator! <laughs> Jordan William Hughes was awarded a prize for space architecture and innovation from the Jack Rogue Foundation in Paris. Mr. Hughes designed an elevator to replace rockets, which he says are inefficient, expensive and bad for the environment. I think we might have to agree a little bit with that one. I I love space elevators. I just have to say I really love them. <laughs> and we're finding out more details about the India Space Research Organization's payloads from Monday's launch of their polar satellite launch vehicle's POEM-3 mission. And part of the mission was to test a hydrogen fuel cell in space, which ISRO says has successfully generated power. India plans to use the concept in future manned missions. ISRO says that during the short-duration test onboard POEM, 180 watts of power was generated from hydrogen and oxygen gases stored on board in high-pressure vessels. The space agency says that the test has provided a wealth of data on the performance of various static and dynamic systems that formed part of the power system and the physics at play. Super cool. Now, China has held the first launch of the year, a Kuaizhou 1A carrier rocket carrying four meteorological satellites blasted off from the Jiuquan Satellite Launch Center in northwest China today. The satellites are part of the Tianmu-1 meteorological constellation and will be mainly used to provide commercial meteorological data services. And China completed the construction of a new commercial launch pad at the end of the year. The pad on Hainan Island is the first of two pads which will host liquid propellant launch vehicles. It's hoped that the new location could reduce debris from falling in inhabited areas, which we saw over the holiday break. I love that video. I'm sorry, I do. <laughs> that concludes our briefing for today, but stay with us for Maria's chat with Philip Harlow, president of Telesat. If you're interested in learning more about any of the stories that we've mentioned in today's show, then you'll find links to further reading in our show notes. And we've added a story that we're really interested in at the moment, where lawmakers in the US think space policy is headed this year. They're all at our website, space.n2k.com. Hey, T-Minus crew. Tune in tomorrow for T-Minus Deep Space, our show for extended interviews, special editions, and deep dives with some of the most influential professionals in the space industry. And tomorrow, we have Philip Harlow talking about the shift by satellite operators from Geo to Leo. Check it out while you're taking down the holiday decorations, at the gym after starting your New Year's resolutions, guilty, or just spending the weekend relaxing. You don't want to miss it. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured.
visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. We spoke to Philip Harlow, the president of commercial satellite operator Telesat, about the market and military shift from Geo to Leo. Philip provided me with some context on Telesat's history and why they're excited about the Leo market. We've been doing Geo for over 50 years. And so, you know, as the Geo market has evolved and with the introduction of first KU band and then KA band, that was certainly KA band was touted to change the entire market. Um, Telesat's been at the forefront of all of that. They're the fourth largest geo satellite operator in the world um, and have some some very solid credibility. So as the world evolves into, um, not into a Leo world, but more as Leo becomes an augmentation to those geo capabilities, Telesat's at the forefront of that as well. We're doing things in a different way. So the whole concept around Lightspeed is not just to put up something that which is you know, standard internet access, best effort to everybody. We are focusing on the uh, the enterprise level part of the market. We are putting in place uh, a number of features that we think are um, absolutely essential to su- succeed in those markets. And all of those elements from that high-end commercial market are very applicable to the government market, uh, particularly the military market. And so... Uh, we feel we're very well placed um, within our little ecosystem of Leos to be one of the premier suppliers of Leo to U.S. government, um, and I'm very excited about the Leo market altogether. Yeah, it it's it is a very fascinating place that Telesat is at right now, especially since you mentioned it has such a great geo heritage, and now it's also entering or it is in the Leo market. It's a fascinating inflection point, uh, and I would love if you could sort of set the scene for me a little bit. We talk about it a bit on the show, um, but I think it is can't can't be emphasized enough how big of a change this is. And I'm curious, especially for government users, why is this move happening? Because geo was sort of you know the protective uh, d- domain of the, especially the U.S. military, but now a lot of them are going into proliferated Leo. We hear a little bit about the why, but I would love for you to explain a bit about why this is such an adv- advantageous move. Well. Um... You've pulled a number of threads there with one question, right? So let me try and unpack a couple of <laughs> Sure. Um, I tend to do that. <laughs> so, um, you know, when it comes to geo, you know, the military started using geo, um, you know, back in the 60s when they when they first launched Tedris and, and a couple of other of the satellites that they, uh, they put up over the years. But in terms of technology and in terms of quantity, whenever we've gone into a conflict, you can pick a conflict starting from the first Gulf War and, and moving forward. Commercial has always played a huge part in the reach and capability that DOD has relied on. And, you know, and, and they went on to build a, a fairly large WGS fleet in GEO. The design cycle for the technology that they've been using is seven to 10 years. And I remember when the first WGS went up in around 2007 or thereabouts, um, that 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 technology was kind of from the very early 2000s or maybe even the late 90s. And so there is a, there is a lag in technology that DOD has adopted. There are good reasons and bad reasons for that, right? So the, 
the bad reason is that DOD is not quite as agile as they might want to be, um, just given the rules that they have to play by. But there are good reasons for that as well. You know, certainly when in the military, when technology gets to the field, it's tried and tested and they've got a supply chain and, and everybody's trained. So it's a well-known function. What commercial brings to the ecosystem is this agility to bring these new things to the, to the marketplace, to the user, where speeds are faster, technology is cheaper, terminals are smaller. So what we're able to do is get to those uh, lower echelon users much more quickly than DOD can reach with its own uh, technology and its own approach. And that's not to say one is better or worse than the other. They're both part of the ecosystem. And I, you know, one of the elements that we should talk about is what the SDA is doing in terms of its uh, um, the tranche uh, one and two of the tranche layer, right? So you know, SDA is, is experimenting with all of these LEO capabilities, and they're trying to figure out, like a lot of governments are, trying to figure out what is good, what's bad, what should we do, what shouldn't we do. My feeling is, like GEO, the LEO is going to take a long time to manifest itself and get to space. And probably by the time it gets there, there's going to be some lag in the technology. There's probably going to be some lag in the, the quantity that they're going to have. Because over time, not only does the commercial world change in terms of technology, but also what we're doing is we're building a growing ecosystem of users. So people who are using satellite today wouldn't have even contemplated that 10 years ago. Now, technology is cheaper, there's more capability, more people are jumping on to using this capability. And by the time the DoD gets to that point, we will have moved on and even more users will want to come in. What we found, I think, in, in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and certainly what's going on in Ukraine today, the ability to have real-time access to video is changing the game, has changed the game even. And uh, we see in Ukraine that there's a lot of exploitation of drones that we're, they're able to control in real time beyond line of sight. And that's just what we've seen in the last two years. Imagine five years from now, 10 years from now, the uses and the capabilities that we're going to be able to bring to bear with all of this new technology. So I think from a, from a DOD perspective, they should experiment with this stuff. It's, it's, it's going to educate them a lot. But at the end of the day, commercial is always going to be a part of that military ecosystem because it's always been, it's always been part of it in the past. So one of the important elements that have uh, been a lot of discussions over the years, but one of the important elements is when they build their own capabilities is to fully understand not only what they're doing, but what we're doing so that they can leverage both and not just ignore one or the other. Yeah, I, I would imagine this is also why the spiral development model is something that SDA has put into place because they, you want to be able to get those very current capabilities out the door, metaphorically speaking, uh, as quickly as possible, right? Especially if that's what the commercial market is bringing to bear so much faster than perhaps the, the really uh, traditional development model. Yeah, SDA is certainly pushing the boundaries of, uh, of their comfort zone, of the DOD's comfort zone, but it's important and they should continue to do it. Now, some of the things they do will fail, but some of them will also be successful. But I think success or failure is not determined necessarily by how well they do or whether it becomes an enduring capability, but really what do they learn from that? And one of the, one of the things that 
if I can tell you a small vignette and you can keep this or not, but it's up to you. But uh, <laughs> I, I love a vignette, so go for it. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was in the British Army. We were in, um, we were based out of Insulik Air Force Base in Turkey. We were working with the Americans, the French, and the Turks, and we were patrolling the northern no-fly zone over Iraq. And we had Land Rovers, and the Americans had their Humvees. And for the Land Rovers, we have two technicians to maintain them. Whereas for the Humvees, the Americans had five or six or even seven. And so the one thing that they brought to the game was that they always had lots of stuff. It was really great. And they would lend us stuff and they would help us. Um, but our two guys would do the same jobs um, on our Land Rovers, much simpler vehicles. But what we learned to do was to leverage each other as allies, but also to leverage the locals in terms of using that commercial capability. And it worked very well. And it, this was across multiple domains. And I just use that vignette as a, an illustration of how we can collaborate between allies, but also how we can collaborate with commercial. So that was my uniform days. And since I've come across to the States, uh, I've been trying to engender that same sort of approach where we want to be real partners. We don't just want to be a vendor to DOD. We want to be partners. We, the majority of the people in our little segment of the industry our former military. Right? We want to be part of the solution. We don't just want to be some cheap vendor off to the side. So figuring out how we collaborate uh, as partners, not just as vendor customer, I think is one of the important parts that flows out of what SDA is doing. So they are leveraging what commercial industry is doing uh, for their own processes. I think the collaboration is pretty close. Um, we just need to find a way to maintain that momentum. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome back. It's fitting for us to close out our first week of 2024, celebrating in the style of New Year's Eve, you know, with popping corks. But did you know that this versatile tree bark will also be keeping astronauts safe as humanity returns to the moon? Yes, humble cork, harvested from the bark of trees that grow around the Mediterranean, has extraordinary properties and has seen it used in crucial bits of space rocket hardware, and it could come to play an even greater role in years to come. We're constantly reading about the new material that's being used by the space industry, but sometimes old is gold. And it's been used for some 60 years already by the space industry. I didn't know this, actually. Sheet cork was used to insulate the Minuteman missiles during the Cold War. And Boeing used cork mixed with resin in their Delta IV launch system. In 2020, ESA also tested cork as an insulator for reentry when the Karman satellite was dropped from the ISS to gather data on atmospheric reentry as it fell back to Earth. 
And Quark is used in ULA's Atlas V, the main launch vehicle used by NASA over the past 21 years to carry robotic missions to Mars and Jupiter. Now, NASA hopes to send humans to the moon using a rocket insulated with Quark. So think about that next time you open a bottle of wine. You're using space material. Well, that's it for today, for January the 5th, 2024. For additional resources from the report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of our podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like ours are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. From the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester. With original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Iben. Our VP is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com.